Good morning, Lake Avenue Church. Uh, thank you, Ruby, for your sharing uh, a powerful and vulnerable piece of art. Um, as someone who, over the course of my life, is waking up uh, to the realities um, of just the rhythms of our, of our world and our nation, many of you are aware, uh, but maybe you haven't connected to the reality that in February, every February, is Black History Month. And Brian Loritz, who used to serve on staff here, is doing something kind of magical for me through his Instagram. And I really encourage you, if you are an Instagram person, to follow Pastor Brian Loritz, because he is regularly uh, sharing a picture and sharing stories of the African-American history within the church uh, that is, is very powerful for me, really waking me up to things I was unaware of, people I was unaware of, um, and it's been the journey of the last couple of months of recognizing that the history that I know, especially the different kinds of history in our country, are, are very limited. And it struck me most when I took my son to go see what I think is one of the better movies of the year, uh, the movie Harriet, which for me did something powerful. It moved me from understanding what Harriet Tubman did to who Harriet Tubman was her character, the kind of person she was. I highly recommend watching this movie. I've since got a biography that I'm working through because she is someone like many people in our history where I just wonder where that kind of courage comes from. I just wonder what allows for someone to have courage in the face of horror. What allows someone like Harriet Tubman to risk her life over and over again for the sake of the other? Where does this kind of will come from? Surely many people sensed the need, but very few moved from seeing a need to living a life of action. So today in our text, we are gonna look at another incredibly strong woman, a strong woman uh, with a godly example for us, the woman of Queen Esther. And my prayer for all of us is that we can connect to her story, to her actions, to her life, to her journey of obedience. Because I think what we will see today is as much as we want to say she's an outlier, as much as we want to say, I mean, she was queen, and we can disconnect from her story and see her obedience as one of those special kind of people, I think when we get down to seeing her journey towards obedience, I hope you can see yourself in her story and recognize that it wasn't just Esther who was born and living for such a time as this, but that you and I have been born and living for such a time as this. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? We'll be in Esther chapter four, the entire chapter. You'll be okay. And if you do not know this story, we are picking up right at a pivotal point, but don't worry. It's like we're starting with the second movie, but I'll catch us up really quickly in a moment. Verse 1, when Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. He went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. 
When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. So she sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. So then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go to the king's presence and to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of royal providences know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death unless the king extends the golden scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to see the king. Verse 12, when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your family will perish. And who knows but that you've come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go. Gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do, and when this is done, I'll go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And so Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Anyone, if you ever come across somebody who says that the Bible is boring, just have them read Esther. It is a mess. It is like the biggest soap opera in the entire Bible. Let me catch you up. There's only four characters that matter for us today, and I'm warning you that Esther, there, it continues. You're going to have to keep reading to see how this soap opera continues, but let me bring you up to speed. Four characters. There's King Xerxes, who is the king of Persia. He's a super interesting guy, and you'll hear why in a moment. The other, the main villain of this story is a guy named Haman. We'll hear about him. And then there's two Jewish people, Mordecai and Esther. Mordecai is the uncle. Esther is the motherless niece, and Mordecai is kind of in charge of her. So uh, here's what's happening. It's about 100 years after the Babylonian exile, and there is a group of Jews living in Susa, which is the capital city of, of Persia at the time. They've been uh, relocated. They're away from their, their home. And, 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 and this is the context of where this story starts. Let me briefly give you three chapters in all of its soap opera. Chapter one and two, we see King Xerxes throwing a, a couple banquets one after another. It was a 187-day party he threw full of lots of drinking, full of lots of, and the sole purpose of these parties was to show off how awesome he was, and so that people could appreciate what a great king he is. And on the very last day of the second banquet, 
he drinks so much that he calls for his wife, who apparently is quite beautiful, and he wants her to come out and just parade her beauty around everybody. I mean, he's so drunk that he wants his wife out there just to show everybody how pretty she is, and she's like, yeah, I, I'm not doing that. And as a result, there was just a small consequence for her. She's no longer his wife. She stands up to him, you're a drunken fool, I'm not doing this. And now he, she has been banned and he reacts this way. He says, not only are you not my wife, but I'm gonna make a new rule for Persia. And the rule is this, that every man is in charge of their household. So the, the authority with which I lead this kingdom, now every household, every Persian household, the man is in charge and women, you do as they say, there's no more speaking back. But he's got another problem, he needs, a, he needs a wife because he doesn't have a wife anymore. And because he's a quality human being, he decides to hold a beauty pageant throughout the land. And this is where we meet Esther and Mordecai. And they decide, let's hide our Jewish identity, Esther, and, and enter the pageant, and Esther wins, and the king is so blown away by her beauty that very quickly he makes her the king the queen of Persia but her Jewish identity has been hidden so the king all the king's attendants no one knows she's Jewish but she's now the queen of Persia now as all this is going on Mordecai the uncle is ha is in some like divine moment where he overhears two guards talk about how they're going to kill the king and so he's got the inside information that the king, there's a, there's a murder plot out for the king, and he then tells Esther, his niece, who is now the queen, and she tells the king, and the king is not killed, and Mordecai gets a lot of applause and a lot of celebration for saving the king's life. Again, we're only like two chapters in. This thing is high drama. Okay, chapter three enter the villain, Haman. Haman is actually not Persian, doesn't matter, but he gets elevated in the king's kind of people to a pretty high position. And why he gets elevated in this position, it's decided that as he goes around Persia and lives out his duties for the king, that people need to bow to him when they see him. When he walks into a room, you bow. Now Mordecai has this opportunity to bow to Haman and he's not bowing. And Haman, really short, really short, gets uh, really frustrated that there's somebody not bowing to him, finds out that Mordecai is Jewish, and then somehow convinces the king to write an edict that says, we're going to kill and massacre, genocide all the Jewish people, and to figure out when they're going to do that, they roll a dice. It was called a pur. If you're familiar with the Jewish holiday Purim, it comes out of this, and you have to read the whole story to appreciate all that's happening there. And so now uh, Mordecai won't bow. Now there's an edict and this word is spreading throughout the land that it's just a matter of time before all the Jews are massacred. And that is where we pick up chapter four. So when Mordecai in chapter four is crying and wearing sackcloth and ashes and grieving at the gate, it's him and it says throughout Persia, as Jews were getting the news of their, their soon-to-be death, that's where the grief, that's where the context comes in. So hopefully what we read with some of that very brief history uh, will help make sense. But what I want us to do is recognize the main players. There's the king, there's Haman, uh, there's Mordecai, but we're looking at Esther. 
And there's something, and she's fairly quiet up to this point in the story, outside of her beauty and outside of her, the providence of her kind of winning this thing and now becoming the queen. Uh, there's not a lot of dialogue with her, but there's something that's happening here in chapter four that pivots the whole chapter. And really under our lens of reluctant obedience, I want to look at her. I want to watch the action of her because what you will see, what I'll hopefully point out, what the text will show us, is that her obedience to this moment, this for a time as this, for her to rise to the moment, was a very human process. It was a progression. She didn't wake up and see the need and go for it. There took some time. And there's three kind of actions that she goes through that I want us to look at, and then we'll get some lessons from it, because it's good Old Testament narrative, and so we'll break it down, understand what's happening, and then ask the bigger question of what, is, uh, what are the lessons for us? What does obedience look like as a result? Okay, so we're going to look through Esther. First thing I want you to see is in the first five verses, notice that Esther saw and she sent. Now again, Mordecai is grieving at the gate. And this is, and I believe next week, Pastor Chuck will be preaching on Jonah. He's going to talk about sackcloth and ashes. You will get some more context on that next week. But, but ultimately, this was just the ancient way of grieving. Here, in our time of grieving, we just apparently hide, right? We don't want to see anybody. But they would be very public in their grieving. And there was a process for which you grieved. And, and, it's, it's, and there's a gate, and he's grieving, and he's crying out. Some would say he's crying out at the gate of the, uh, of the palace, so that he can get the attention of Esther. Some would say it was like a public protest, that it was a way where you could register your, your, your issues with the king and the way he was leading. But whatever the case is, Mordecai's at the gate, and there's a rule that says as long as you're grieving publicly, if you're wearing sackcloth and ashes, you can't get past the gate. But Esther, in these first five verses, is somehow able to see what's happening beyond the gate. And she not only sees what's happening, she keeps sending to find out more information. Now, now in this symbolic context, it's really interesting to think that historically, people who live beyond that gate in the palace, if it's not past the gate, it's not their problem. So Esther's already doing something very different in this moment by being concerned about what's happening on the other side of that gate. Hearing the wailing, hearing the grieving, hearing the cries, hearing the stories about how more and more people are grieving. Her ears were alert, and so she sends, she saw, and she sent. A word for this would be empathy. That she was curious. She was, she, she was showing empathy. There was something happening out there, and she wanted to know what it was. Now, this, the interesting part, when she sends clothes to give to Mordecai, that was probably a plot to say, I can get you behind the gate, and you can talk to me, but you got to put on these clothes because you know the rule. You can't get past the gate if you're wearing sackcloth and ashes. And Mordecai is in such grief. This was not a, this why I would say he wasn't just trying to get in because he had his moment to get in. But he was grieving so publicly, he was so in, in pain that he denies the plot and stays outside, but Esther doesn't stop. She wants to know more. And so she sends again and now sends message and has a dialogue through her messenger, through her attendant. And what's so interesting to me is that Esther wanted the story when the story, frankly, didn't have to involve her. Her identity was hidden. Yes, all the Jews were threatened, but she was not known 
at that moment to be Jewish. She wanted the story. She wanted to hear it firsthand. So she sent for the story. And what I find so interesting about Esther is that when she sent to find out what was happening, I guarantee you she got more than she was asking for. Because up until this point, up until this point, Mordecai and Esther have remained hidden. Who they really are has been hidden, in a sense. And Mordecai has gone public. He went public when he didn't bow, and now he's gone really public by the grieving in public. And what he is saying, and he, every, there's a connection to Esther. Esther's about ready to be outed, in a sense. And Mordecai is saying, I'm going public with my Jewish identity. And she was just looking for information about what the pain is. But I want you to see that this, by seeing and sending, Esther is brought into the pain, into the problem. She finds out in great detail what's happening. So, first thing we see, Esther, she saw what was happening and she sent for more information. She wanted to understand. The next few verses, verses 6 through 11, what we will see is that Esther wrestled with the risk. Because empathy, Esther saw, she sent, and now she's involved in the story. It wasn't just, it might have started as curiosity, but now she's involved because Mordecai is asking her to be involved. And the next action of Esther is not yet, I'm all in. It's she's wrestling with what this means for her. What started out as empathy for the other is now come to a place where she's being asked to participate in solving a problem, and before she gets to a place of obedience, she is wrestling with the risk of what it means for her. And this is why I love Esther, because she's so human. Because many of us see problems. Many of us understand what's broken in this world, but the truth is, for many of us, what gets in the way of us stepping into that moment to help solve problems or to be present with people in their pain is what does it going to do for me? In many ways, empathy is replaced by Esther with what about me? And for you and for me, empathy is always challenged with what about me? I can have empathy up to a degree. You can have empathy up to a degree, to a degree but, but what about me? What is this going to do to me? She's been hiding her Jewish identity and what she comes back with is, I know you want me to go to the king and try to plead for our people, but you understand how this works, right? I mean, this is not a, this is not a stellar human being who throws his own parties, gets drunk, outs his wife, has a beauty pageant. I mean, this is, a, this is not a guy with a whole lot of morals. He has done, he got rid of his wife for less than what Esther would be doing when Mordecai says, go to him and plead for our people. And she's got to wrestle with what's being asked of her because what's being asked of her is everything. What's being asked of her is to put her life on the line for someone else. What's being asked of her is to, is to, say, is to say, my own very life. You know that it, not everybody can go to the king, whether you're a man or a woman. You don't just approach the king. If you do, you're gone, except there's this kind of weird lottery random system with the golden scepter, and if you get the golden scepter, then you get a chance. Now, what you'll see is she's going to win the lottery in chapter 5 and 6. It's amazing. But she's counting the cost because that's what 
action and obedience does. It help, we have to count the cost sometimes. And what gets in the way from us doing the risky thing that God is asking us to do, what could have gotten in the way for Esther to do what Mordecai was asking her to do was her own self-preservation, her own sense of self. And what I love about Esther, yes, she saw, she was curious, she wasn't afraid of the pain, she didn't hide behind the gate. She saw and she sent for more information, but she's a human being. She wrestled with what it meant for her once she got looped into the story. And I think in these few verses, 6 to 11, we see Esther spinning. She's declaring the slim way in which she could get a hearing. With the, she, she's given all the excuses. You don't do this. And by the way, I haven't seen the guy in 30 days. Maybe he's done with me. Maybe he doesn't, maybe, maybe I'm on my way out and you're asking me to get closer. I don't, I don't request him, he requests me and it's been 30 days. She's wrestling, she's spinning, she sees a problem, she's sent for more information and now she's wrestling with what it means for her. Sounds very human, doesn't, doesn't it? That oftentimes we wrestle with what it means for me when we see a problem and we're invited into a solution. But what I love about Esther is verses 12 through 17, we see that ultimately Esther accepted the moment. Ultimately, what we will celebrate in chapter 4 and throughout the rest of this book is that she somehow got past her wrestling and she was able to do what she was being called to do. So we're going to end our episode today with a clear declaration, an affirmation that what Mordecai is asking Esther to do by speaking to the king and pleading for, uh, for the people, the, the people who are suddenly and soon going to be dying, she accepts the risk, she claims her spot in this moment in Israel's history, but how she got to the place of accepting the moment, there's just so much richness in these last few verses, I, well, let's, look, let's just dissect them for a moment. I want you to see this. In verses 13 to 14, front part of 14, Mordecai says this. He sent back this answer to Esther. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another, another place, but you and your father's family will perish. Okay, so sometimes when we see problems in this world, when we get close to pain, uh, there's this tendency for even followers of God, followers of Jesus like you and me, to think that we are the ones who are going to bring the solution. That it's all on us. And what I love about Mordecai, yeah, he's being a bit flippant, he's threatening a little bit, but what, in essence what he recognizes is God's going to do what God's going to do. Relief for the Jews will come. There was some security in the identity as God's chosen people. Like, a, as big as the threat was, there was some confidence that they were going to be okay because God has already said, you are my people, I am with you. Uh, th there was a trust. There was a, the sovereignty of God was a part of this reality, that Esther wasn't looped in somehow to think that she was God in this moment, that the sovereignty of God was already identified by Mordecai, and it wasn't that she had to be God to save the people, but that she's been invited by God to participate in the saving of the people. That is a huge distinction and difference, that Esther was not the savior in this situation. When Mordecai declares that relief and deliverance for the Jews will come from another place, it's good theology. It's a good understanding of the Torah. It's a good understanding that, that God is going to protect his people. 
but there's an invitation to Esther to help participate in what God's going to do. So I want you to see that her decision to accept understood, at least she had knowledge and a reminder of the sovereignty of God, that she was asked to play a part, not do all the work. The second movement, in the second part of verse 14, I want you to see the, the divine appointment, what feels random. I love this language that Pastor Greg has given our congregation over the years of the divine appointment, seeing nothing is random. You being here, not random. So when Mordecai says, and who knows, but you have come to your royal position for such a time as this, that this is Esther waking up to the reality that all that has happened in her life, maybe, just maybe, was for this particular moment. That she's been given her life for this time, in this story, for this moment. Her life, her journey to become queen, what has felt random or lucky, or if you're like me, was it lucky, unlucky? It's a divine appointment. All this. See, Mordecai is used to help her see her position, her access, her very narrative of her life story, as all leading up to this moment, this divine opportunity. And I think that's an interesting and important observation on the way to obedience, that Esther was able to recognize that, that for all of this for now, all of this for now, that God will do what God's going to do, yes, the sovereignty of God, but the invitation and the purpose for which we, this woman has lived and the access she has been given, the position she's been given, the, the, the seating she has, Esther is waking up to the reality that she's been divinely appointed to this moment. And then ultimately, the last thing I want you to see is in verse 16, the role of prayer and fasting in her obedience. I find this marvelous. So when she gets to a point of where she says, I'm going to do this, go gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I and my attendants will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Do you see the role that devotion plays into this? Some of you might know this, but you know God is never mentioned by name in the book of Esther. But I see God inferred all over the place, as we've already done in the text. And this would be a clear place of inference. Fasting and praying. This is what Jews would do. This is what you would do. You would, your devotion to God especially in times of fear and crisis. She is saying, I will obey. I'm going to do this, Mordecai. I'll go to the king, but before I do, I need to spend some time with God, and I need you to spend some time with God on my behalf. The call to prayer and the call to fasting precedes her action of obedience. And what I find so amazing and so different from our western way of thinking about prayer and fasting is she doesn't pray and fast to change the circumstance she prays and fasts to gear up for the risk of the of the moment she didn't say pray and fast for three days and then maybe you know maybe the the, the edict will be reversed and how can we intercede to change the situation i mean she ends this declaration after we pray after we fast i'll go to the king and if i die i die she knows full well the risk before the prayer and the fast we live in a time where we go to god to pray and to fast maybe probably not fast i don't that much as you can tell um 
But we pray and fast so that, so that the difficulty and the risk would be mitigated. She's praying and fasting to gear up for the inevitable, which is this is highly risky obedience. And I love her for this. It's courage. See, Esther is held as an example of obedience, but I hope you see the journey of obedience started with her scene. It started with her getting beyond the pain and wanting to know more, sending for more information. And once that information came to the reality that she was involved now, I've seen so much that I'm now involved. I can't unsee. Disengagement is not an option for Esther. And because she was already in, now she's got the risky wrestling that happens when we see things we don't want to see and when we sense we're invited into places that are scary and different, we will always battle, what about me, over the empathy? But ultimately, she gets to a place of owning her, her moment, this moment in Israel's history. But her journey to that was full of devotion, it was full of seeing her own life as not random. It was full of understanding that God's inviting her into something, not being God in this moment. She's an incredible example of obedience. So what, what can we learn? I think some of you have already learned. We could go right back and use all three of those actions, and I believe that all of us fall somewhere, find challenge somewhere in, in these places. Whether you need to start seeing things you can't see, or, or do you live a life where the gate of all the issues of the world are pretty far from you, and if it's not near you, it's not your problem. Some of you, that's preaching to you right now, and the Spirit's saying, it's time to learn. Some of you need to wrestle with risk, and you've lost opportunity after opportunity after opportunity, the invitation of God to be used by God to, to, bring, uh, to bring Him and His presence into this world, but our fear... The risk of what about me has prevented you from, from, from saying yes to the invitation of God. Maybe that's what you're wrestling with today. And some of you, some of you, maybe it's a different kind of prayer and fasting for this world, for your life, for your own obedience. Maybe, maybe something's preaching there. I, I want to share three things that I think are critical about obedience from this story. And when I say obedience, and you see it on the slide, I mean obedience to God. First, obedience is often beyond ourselves. Oftentimes we talk, especially in our Western kind of culture, that our obedience to God is our own personal journey. And yes, that is a part of it. And if you weren't here last week, pick up the sermon on David. That's where the emphasis of our message last week was about our own individual obedience to God. But so often I find throughout the scripture that obedience is about the other. That true obedience to God often is beyond our own personal self and is called into something bigger and something greater. And this is what makes obedience a struggle. Because it's not about us all the time. The result of the obedience may not benefit you. It may actually cost you. It might cost me. But I don't know how we have an obedience to God without recognizing that obedience to God is often beyond, beyond ourselves. We have to see other people's problems. We have to see other people's pain. We have to hear other people's weeping. And in our modern world, we can actually structure our life, our news feeds, our entire existence to stay away from everybody else's problems. 
Obedience to God invites us into the other, to see, to understand, to send for more information, to recognize that I might see something I don't understand. I need to, I need to learn more, tell me more. And can we see and send long enough till we see our own place in the problem? Obedience is often, often beyond ourselves. We see that, Nestor. We see that throughout the scripture. Second, obedience risks loss. I believe that God has called each one of us into some amazing and dynamic places. The amazing opportunities in your office in your family, in your, in your kid's school, in your neighborhood. Thrilling things God is doing. And he's inviting us into that all the time, but so often our own fear, our own lack of self-esteem prevents us from actually accepting the invitation. Obedience risks loss. Sometimes what God's inviting us into is so exciting and risky that, that we, we, we get stuck wrestling or we don't wrestle enough. One of the moments I grieved most in my years of ministry was, was this clear moment very long time ago where a student in their senior year of high school who had been accepted to an incredible college had such a profound encounter with Jesus in May of their senior year and sense God calling them to take a gap year and to go serve with the ministry in a, in a city on the East Coast. And, and it was just so clear, all the divine appointment, the, the narrative, all of it, it was right there. And, and that student was so scared to tell their parents that I sat with that student while they shared with their parents. I, I called the school. We can postpone it a year. I just, God's calling me to this. And the parents at that point said, no way, no how, that's not what we do. And I remember the grief on that student's face. And I, re as a parent, I don't judge that totally. I'm kind of judging it. Um, <laughs> I'd, love to think I, I'd love to think that my wife and I would have said, go for it. I, I don't know if I would have. But I'll tell you, that was a game changer in that student's relationship with God. And I wonder what would have happened what kind of story God was writing in that person. But because of the fear, because of the loss, that, that, that story didn't unfold in the same way. Obedience risks loss. You're part of a church with a whole lot of risk. You know how many missionaries? This is part of what, what they think about when they go on the field. What, God's called me somewhere. It's risky. It's scary. I, I'm losing everything. And we celebrate it from afar, many of us. This week, I wanted to share this with you. Uh, Pastor Scott White, myself, and Steve Scheidler will get on a plane, and we're going to go visit some of our missionary families at Lake. We'll be in Turkey. We'll be in Kenya. Don't worry. Uh, we have good people preaching while we're gone. But part of the reason I want to do that is I know the history of this church. I know that every most senior pastors, and I am aware, I am just the acting senior pastor. I get it. But the history of Henry Hutchins leaving on a boat for three months at a time to go visit our missionaries, encourage them, and learn from them. The, the stories of Ray Ortland doing that, Greg Waybright doing that. That is a rich part because they've risked so much to follow Jesus that they need to see that their church cares for them and that we can learn from that kind of obedience. 
See, obedience risks loss, and we love that story for other people, but do you love the risking loss for your story? Do you sense an invitation from Jesus? Risking loss is the journey of following Jesus. I hope that we can grow as individuals and as a church to not see risk as something to be avoided, but something to be confronted and to watch God move. Keep reading Esther. Oh, so exciting. Finally, obedience is for such a time as this. Obedience to God lives in very real time. And so my question for you and for me this week is, what are you seeing? Who are you seeing? Can you hear anybody weeping right now? What are you learning? What are you praying for? Who are you praying for? What are you fasting for? And I'm saying you intentionally, you, you, what are you doing? I think we love this idea of for such a time as this for somebody else. We like pointing that to others. Like, like you have an opportunity here. You at a time. What about you? I'm asking you to look at the mirror this week like Avenue Church and do you believe it all? That there's nothing random about you being alive right now in 2020. And that you right now have been made and created and given a story and given a relationship with God for such a time as this? Have you owned your moment in this world? A common response and feeling sounds more like two responses most of the time. One, just a lot of lamenting about how difficult this time is. And it is. I'm raising raising two boys in this world. Many of you are raising... More than that, this is not an easy time in some ways uh, to be a follower of Jesus and to hold certain kinds of values. I get that. But a lot of the time we can just kind of ho-hum and be defeatist, like we just got to hang on or move to Texas. If you're moving to Texas, that's great. But And we're just enduring life because it's just so bad. But what about for such a time as this? You're right here. Did God place you here for this moment in this time? Or the other extreme, it's just so bad we've got to overly organize and we've got this kind of militant response that we've got to double down and we've got to strategize and we've got, and where's the trust and faith? And where's us in that story? I feel like in these times it's easy for us to punt responsibility to whomever, whatever, and wherever we think change is supposed to happen. So you tell me what you think I ought to be doing. You, you line up with a potential candidate because that's going to be the person for a time like this. You line up with the, the right kind of blog or thinking or, or whatever it would be. We're looking for somebody else to own this moment and be faithful. And I think that's important, but I'm asking you to own this moment and to be faithful too. What does it look like to look in the mirror and to own each one of our roles in this moment? What has the Lord given to you for this moment to be obedient to him for such a time as this? Let me give you two quick things and we'll wrap it up. First, let's own the moment we are in here at Lake Avenue Church. It is for such a time as this. And the easy story is to 
to be a church in transition, and I've asked us to be a church in motion. Yes, it is a season we are looking for and discerning for a new senior pastor. Hear me, do your survey, but do not put your trust in an individual to rise to this moment for such a time as this. Do not put your trust in anything other than the living God for such a time as this. Obedience is for you and for me, not to wait and hope for, but to participate in ourselves. Now, now I'm going to get meddle a little bit, because you know how many, I, some of you have said, Jeff, just don't, don't talk about politics. Not, now, I'm not, how do you, that'd be like not talking about food right now. This is, I have eyes, and you have eyes, and I see. Disengagement is not an option. But can we as a church own that for such a time as this, we're a church family, and it is a weird time politically? I don't care who you are. I don't, I don't care who you like or don't like. We're all making compromising decisions, all of us. There is not one particular person we will vote for at any level who somehow embodies the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ. All of us will come to different conclusions, potentially, based on our love for Jesus and our hope for how all this plays out in our world. And that is tricky. And there are plenty of churches where there's just, it's a lot easier, where it's everybody's about this or everybody's about this. But for such a time as this, God has brought us into a church family and maybe, just maybe, there's something beautiful that can emerge in a world that is divided, in a world that just looks for people to be just like ourselves, that what would it be like to be the one, one of the very few places of expression of difference for such a time as this? Can we own this moment? Can we handle this season? Can we handle that one another thinks about things a little bit differently, even as we think about Jesus the same. Can we be a church with an example of what one's counter to the rest of the world? Can we see what we can't see? Can we listen and learn to what we don't know? Can we wrestle with what we're seeing and hearing? And ultimately, can we be a place that believes in, 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 in God's sovereignty and fasts and pray and, 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 and understands that God is inviting all of us into relationship with him and one another for such a time as this? It's not for such a time as this for the staff of this church or for just the elected officials in this world. It's for all of us. Everyone who works at Lake Avenue Church, within their first few days, they come into my office, and I talk to them for 20 minutes, sometimes a little bit longer. I go over our staff values, and I talk about our staff expectations. And we have three staff values that I would love for our, to be our church values. And, their value, and there's more. Don't worry. We have a statement of faith. You have to follow Jesus. This is just like day to day. But our values are discussion, discussable, dialogue, and decision. We want to be a place where anybody who works here can ask a question. This is a, this is a ministry and professional ministry is very confusing. We want people to ask their questions. If they see something that doesn't make sense to them or they don't agree with, that they could bring those questions up. We want to be discussable. It takes an incredible amount of self-awareness to make something discussable. We don't want to just live in discussion. We want to have dialogue. Just because I make something up that makes it discussable doesn't mean I'm right. So I, I want to have an attitude of curiosity. 
I want dialogue. To have dialogue in this world takes an incredible amount of humility because it means what I'm seeing and saying, I could be wrong. I need to understand more. Tell me more. Tell me more. We want to have a culture of dialogue on our staff. But ultimately, we have to be a place of decision, which means I and others are going to make decisions that you're not going to agree with. And so in those moments, because we have self-awareness, because we have humility, because we can always talk about everything, when a decision is made that you don't agree with, we're going to trust one another. I'm going to trust that all of us are doing the best we can with the day we're having and the information that we have. Discussable dialogue decisions, self-awareness, humility, and trust. I pray that that would be the kind of obedience for us at Lake Avenue Church in this moment. We need it. We need one another. Esther moved from preserving her own self-welfare to risking for the welfare of the other. In a world of self-preservation, of self-welfare, do you hear the Lord calling you? Can you look in the mirror and hear the Lord call us at LAC to be a people focused on the welfare of one another and the other? It's a costly call. It has risks. Your comfort is part of that. My comfort is a part of that. But keep reading Esther. I tell you, it is a kind of obedience that is thrilling. It is a kind of obedience that puts us in the action of what God is doing. It's a kind of obedience for this exact moment that we've been created for, for such a time as this. Join me in prayer. Father, help us to own this moment in history as your followers. Help us to be the kind of people who don't punt responsibility to someone else, but to own our story, to see what you are showing us, to wrestle with what that means for us, but to ultimately trust you to step out in faith and take the action to own the moment you've called us to here at this church, in our families, in our lives, in this world. For surely, God, for surely, God, it's not the only moment in history where there was some crazy stuff happening. And you chose your people to be a part of the solution. Help us sense your invitation now and say yes. And if I perish... I perish. Amen.